Matthew 7, 1 through 6, this morning. Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Well, my title this morning is Judge Not, But Use Judgment. Judge not, but at the same time as Christians, use judgment. We're called to be discerning, but we are not called to be critical or filled with a judgmental spirit. That's what this text is all about. And Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount, on his Sermon on the Mount, is addressing both perspectives, not being judgmental. Now, to some degree, we all fight being judgmental at varying degrees. My wife and I chuckled at sort of this, this section in the Anchorage Daily newspaper that she would read in our kitchen um, to me, some of these quotes from uh, tourists that have been with us this summer in Anchorage in Alaska. This is one of my favorites i got to share. A tourist standing on a dock with a fisherman. The tourist says, we're so far north, how far above sea level are we? And the fisherman went, hmm, about 10 feet. <laughs> and sometimes it's hard not to be a little bit critical, a little bit judgmental there, but uh, I think Jesus is talking on a deeper level. You know, the, there, there are people who are very critical, and it's almost a ep- epidemic at times. There was a bachelor who was trying to get married, and he was trying to find a wife, and he would date several different women one at a time and bring them home and try to see if there would be a connection between the girl he was dating and uh, his parents. And every time that he would bring a prospective wife home, his mother would criticize her unmercifully, so much so that he was at wit's end and he went to a friend of his for advice and his friend said, look, all you got to do is find a woman that's just like your mother. Find her clone and then things will work out for you. So he did. He found her. It was amazing. She looked like his mother. Her gait, the way she walked was like her mother. She talked like her mother and even thought like her mother. It was amazing. So he brought her home. Then later on, this bachelor came across his friend again, and his friend said, so how did it go? You know, you introduced her to your mom, and what'd she think? He said, it was amazing. My mom loved her. It was my father who couldn't stand her this time. <laughs> Matthew chapter 7. This is the home stretch of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and it's made up of several different sort of short pithy points that he makes that almost are the take-home points of the sermon. These are his application points, the way to live it out. 
And at first glance, you almost would think that Matthew has arranged these paragraphs in cut-and-paste fashion, where there's no sort of common theme or thread in and through them. But the more I looked at these ideas and themes, they all kind of come under one banner. And that is the banner of relationships. Relationships. It's relating to different people. We relate to people within the body of Christ. We relate to people who are our enemies. We relate to people who possibly are false teachers. We relate to people in such a way that we want to do to them as we would want to be treated. The golden rule of verse 12. We relate to God our Father in prayer. And we relate to God the Son on Judgment Day. That's all found in and through this closing chapter to this sermon. But, you know, deeper than just relating to people on a social level, or even in terms of the golden rule, wanting others to treat us uh, in a way that we would treat them, uh, instead of it being just that, it's a little broader in scope. Chapter 5 talks about Believers discerning the law. Remember that study, how we're to obey the law from the heart, not just with superficial obedience. Chapter 6 talks about discerning our hearts in terms of our religion, what we do, how we pray, how we give, how we fast. We're we're trying to discern our own hearts. Now chapter 7 is talking about discerning our hearts in terms of how we relate to other people. In terms of relating to people and to God. You know, that's why we're talking right at the top of this chapter about judging. Because that is such a common temptation to be judgmental towards other people. It's something that we need to be fighting in ourselves as it kind of crops up in our hearts. Where we look at someone and we want to look at them through a jaundiced eye instead of with loving, gracious charity. Some people thrive on being critical, and there's two ways that people judge each other, and one is with a critical spirit. And, and people thrive on being critical. They, they love to be judgmental. They, they will you know, look at the one thing that they don't line up with, in terms of what they believe or what they do or how they live their Christian life, and they focus on that and they just color the whole person with negativity instead of loving that person and enjoying that person. So often we miss out on relationships because we're judgmental. Some people in a more severe way will latch on to some scandal, you know, something that's happened in the church, perhaps a fallen leader or a church that's going in a different direction philosophically than we are. And so you say, oh, you know, I can't stand that situation or could you believe that thing happened with that ministry? And all the while that person is trying to point the attention away from themselves, right, and put it on someone else. Oftentimes a critical spirit is a smokescreen. But on the other hand, we are called to use good judgment. There's two ways to judge. There's the critical spirit, and then there's using good judgment. And we should do that. Paul commends using good judgment. It's required from the, from the scripture to be one who is of good judgment. I think sometimes we like to just see that word you know, judging or, or judgment as only a negative term. 
I remember in seminary we had these things called discipleship labs, and I was meeting you know, with a professor and a group of students, and we're talking and sharing life and getting to know each other. And the professor said, look, just as a way to break the ice, what one word would you use to describe yourself? You know, you're kind of like, okay, which one am I going to choose you know, to label myself um, for the rest of the semester? And it, it came around to a German student who was new to America, so he had the heavy accent, and his name was Yedigen. And so Yedigen started to talk, and he said, the one word I would use of myself is, I'm critical. And we're just kind of, you know, I mean, when you hear that word critical, you're thinking, man, what, what does he mean by that? But he meant he's analytical, right? And so the professor is saying, I, I think you mean analytical, right? You know, but, you know, because you could be misperceived as saying you're a critical person, a judgmental person. But Paul says that we should judge things wisely. And if you look through 1 Corinthians, he uses this word judge or judging over and over again. 1 Corinthians 5, you might look it up later. He's talking about church discipline and, and trying to discern people in our church and, and where they are spiritually. Verse 12, for what have I to do with judging outsiders, Paul says, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? 1 Corinthians 6, where Paul is confronting the church for um, bringing people up on charges and courts and, and bringing lawsuits against people outside of the church in court cases. He says, or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know you're going to judge angels? He's just saying, look, you've got discernment within the church to work through your issues. You don't have to go out to the secular courts to figure it out. And then in 1 Corinthians 10, he was confronting the church again for worshiping in a way that was syncretistic, where they were worshiping Christ, but they were doing it through idolatrous means, pagan means. And he says in 1 Corinthians 10, 15, I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Then ultimately in 1 Corinthians 11, he's talking about worship and how it's to be conducted in the church. And he says again, judge for yourselves how this is supposed to be done. If you go back to Matthew 7, later on we're going to see in verses 15 and following how the church is called to judge false prophets that come in like sheep, but they're really ravenous wolves in the midst of the flock. We're supposed to examine the fruit of those people and make judgments and discern right from wrong. But back up to verse 1. This is a warning. This is not a commendation to judge. This is a warning not to be a judgmental or cynical or critical Christian or to not be a judgmental non-Christian. He says, judge not that you be not judged. Don't enter into that kind of condemnation is what Jesus is saying. Saying, don't go there. Don't, don't turn out to be that guy. Now, what does it mean to judge here? You know what it means to judge? It means to be filled with self-righteousness. It means that you, you come to the place in your mind and your thinking that you begin to believe that you are the standard by which everything else is judged. You're the righteous standard, you're a 10 spiritually, and everybody else is lesser than you, right? And, and so what they do or don't do or how they live is judged in terms of your own self-righteous pride. 
kind of a bad place to be. And so Jesus is warning these disciples, saying, verse 2, For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured toward you. In other words, you're saying you're the standard, you're the measuring stick, but Jesus flips it on its head and says, no, 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 no. Your judgmentalism will mean that God will measure, according to your judgmentalism, condemnation. Or for the believer, chastening. There's actually two kinds of judgment that could come under this exhortation. One is for unbelievers and the other is for believers. Judgmental unbelievers are eternally judged. A judgmental unbeliever who does not repent before he dies or she dies will be eternally judged. And so this is a reference and an allusion to hell. If you are filled with self-righteousness, then that means you are not filled with saving faith. Just think about it. What's the definition of saving faith? It's where you say, look, I've got nothing. I can't save myself. I'm a sinner. I get it. I see it. I've, I've seen my sin. Woe is me. If I were judge of myself, I would send me to hell too. I deserve hell. I have, I have wronged Christ and I've wronged other people and I need mercy And so I can't save myself. I can't earn my salvation. I can do nothing to be saved. That's saving faith. That's where grace enters in. Self-righteousness is where you are overwhelmed with yourself and you believe in yourself and you are trusting yourself as the reason why you will go to heaven. So many people will say, the reason I believe I'm going to heaven is because my good outweighs my bad or sin. Right? I mean, people say that as a mantra over and over again. And, and that is this. This is being that person filled with self-righteousness, even if someone says they're not. In Luke 18, you have the two that were praying. You have the Pharisee and the tax gatherer. You have the, the religious, religious leader, the pastor who's praying. And then you have the tax gatherer who comes. And let me just paint for you what the tax gatherer was just for a second. The tax gatherer wasn't just someone who would who would come by and mess up people's day because they're collecting taxes and that's tough anyway. They're the IRS agent that you don't want to, you know, have to fill the paperwork out for. And then they're a little bit corrupt and they skim some cream for themselves. That's that's not what's going on here. A tax gatherer was someone who represented the tyranny of Rome. Rome had conquered the known world during this time, and the only way that you could sustain that kind of world domination was to tax everybody, right? You couldn't just, you know, if, if somebody was rebelling thousands and thousands of miles away, you couldn't just, you know, fire up a squadron of jets that would go over and drop a bomb on them and rectify the situation. You had to, you had to keep your network of control through taxing People through oppression. And so a tax gatherer was an oppressor, an oppressive person representing something like a, a Hitler's rule. You've got this sort of Nazi over here, and then you've got the pastor who's looking at the Nazi going, I thank God I'm not like him. So you, you see that statement in that context. A lot of people say, Amen, brother, not like that. Self righteousness. It was the Pharisee who was pumping himself up 
and was not spiritually minded, and the tax gatherer beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, expressing the exact opposite, which is saving faith. Then you have the other category. You have judged unbelievers, judgmental unbelievers, and then you have judgmental believers who are temporarily judged. Temporarily judged. What do I mean by that? Well, first of all, an example of a saved judgmental person would have been King David, right? He had, he had become an adulterer, a murderer, a liar. He'd broken virtually all of the Ten Commandments in one fell swoop. As king, the most spiritually-minded person over Israel, or should have been, he fell. And Nathan the prophet comes along and exposes him by creating this scenario before David's eyes, saying, look, the rich man stole the poor man's sheep, so what, you know, what say you about the rich man? And David said, that man deserves to die. He was being judgmental. He wasn't looking at his own heart. He's going, that guy deserves to die. And really, had that been a true story, the sheep stealer didn't deserve to die. He just needed to make restitution. But David was so wound up with himself and so defensive and so judgmental that that's what's coming out of his mouth. And then he repented. And then he repented. But for us, as we wrestle with being judgmental, we need to be warned and realize that the scripture is clear to say that we will give an account for being critical of other people. We will. God will give us an audience, and we will have to give an account. The Bema Seat Judgment, 1 Corinthians 3, is where our works that are works of judgmentalism will be burned up. It says each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. I think, you know, that's sort of the hay, wood, and stubble that's going to be burned. 1 Corinthians 3.15, it says if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. There'll be a sense of loss for all that was lost in relationships and love and all of the joy that was lost here on earth. Though at the same time, he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Now, if you connect this scenario to Romans 14, you get a clearer picture that God really is holding people to an account for being judgmental. The context of Romans 14 is talking about people who are judging other people regarding what they choose to eat or don't eat. The the people who are willing to eat meat sacrificed to idols and the people who aren't. Right? You got the meat eaters and the vegetarians, and, and they're just after each other, judging each other. And, and Paul says, So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Romans 14 12, the next verse. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. James 3.1 kind of compliments this and ramps it up and says, Let not many of you be teachers of the word of God, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. So we all at varying degrees live under this accountability, whatever that looks like. But still, let me just say, how do we reconcile this accounting before God with the fact that we are covered in grace and we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ And our sin debt has been canceled and nailed to the cross. All that's true, but this is true too. So how do we reconcile this for our Christian lives? Well, I tried to do it in my own mind with a scenario where I, uh, at 16, 
before I was in Christ, uh, stood before a judge. I did. Now, you can stand before a judge even after you're saved, but my scenario was um, set up this way in God's plan. Mistake number one. My parents gave me the car keys to a brand new 1987 Ford Mustang. Said, hey, you can drive that to school within the first 90 days of getting your license. Mistake number two. I drove there. Parked outside of school grounds in a neighborhood where other students parked. And I invited three, three or four teenagers to jam into the car and I would just shuttle them home safely, right? Uh, mistake number two or three, right? Um, mistake number four, I get in the car and one of the students in the back seat says these fateful words. So what can this thing really do? And so I, you know, just said, well, I'm going to abide by the speed limit right now. No, I put my pedal all the way to the floor and started to take off. But within half a block, by God's grace, there was a police officer to sting me. I was stung, right? The setup was, um, was happening, and he was reading me um, my rights and my, you know, giving me a ticket. And so, ultimately, I found myself with my father in court the next week, my dad with a suit and tie on and briefcase, and he was there to make my case before the judge and sort of support me, but tell the judge that he had disciplined me already. And so, I was in sort of this environment where I was seeing my other friends, the other surfer buddies uh, that were around who had also been caught on that day or that week, and everybody was pretty sobered up. Nobody was joking around as the judge walked into the room. Everybody was minding their P's and Q's. And I remember the judge looking at me over the bench and saying, So, son, what do you have to say for yourself? All of a sudden, the effect that was supposed to take place in my heart was happening. And the lesson was being learned because the walls in the room began to extend up higher and higher. The bench got bigger. His robe became more austere. And my throat became very, very dry as my heart beat out of my chest. And I just don't even remember much of what I said except not a whole lot and that I was totally guilty. But for some reason, after my father explained that I had been chastened and been on suspension, the judge kind of dismissed the charge and let me go. By grace, what I did not deserve, he gave to me in that moment. I think that that is what I'm expecting to have happen, you know, a hundredfold more in heaven before God. We'll go before a loving judge who knows you, loves you, made you, created you, is creating Christ in you right now, but we'll go before that judge and we will give an account. An account for what we do with this passage, what we do with what the Spirit of God is doing in your heart right now. We will give an account for this. And we need not be judgmental. And we need to be repentant if we are. But we need to be sobered and reminded that we'll give an account, but remember that there's grace that will cover all that we've done at the same time. This is, I think, the picture of heaven that we see in the Bible. So judgmental people, they thrive on being critical. They ignore this kind of accountability. And then thirdly, they are hypocrites. They're hypocrites. That's what it means to be a blood-bought, spirit-filled believer who is being judgmental. They're hypocrites. Let me show you why. Verse 3. 
Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? Well, he kind of smokes out the hypocrisy with two questions to guide believers away from this sort of judgmental behavior. The first question is, why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye? Why are, you, why are you looking at that, is what he's saying. And a speck here, let me just define this more precisely. It's not just some fleck of dust or a piece of sawdust or a bit of gravel that comes into the eye. That is alarming when that takes place, right? It is irritating and takes precision to remove. But really what this speck is in the original language is sort of a, a chunk of wood or a wood shaving. So something that's big, something that's noticeable up against someone's eye. These are sort of ludicrous scenarios. You've got a wood block in one person's eye, and then you've got a log, which is really a, a beam of wood, uh, like a beam across a ceiling, a beam of wood. That's what he's saying here. And it's almost comedic where a person is completely covered and, and, and blinded by this beam of wood, and they're looking to examine someone else's wood shaving that's in their eye. A wood shaving, in essence, is, is a sin. It's a noticeable sin. It's something that, that we would see in someone's life and need to assist them with. But if that's a large sin, then our beam of wood is gigantic. What is this beam of wood? The beam of wood, I believe, represents self-righteousness, being judgmental. Just from this context, I think Jesus is saying, listen, if you're filled with yourself and you're filled with pride and self-righteousness, then you are rendering yourself useless to help somebody else out with their own sin that you can see. And it's almost comedic. It's, you know, the idea that it's almost like three, the Three Stooges functionally, where Curly's got the, the ladder, you know, and they're, they're trying to paint the, the building, and he's knocking uh, Mo and Larry around and kicking paint cans over, sort of in a slapstick kind of way. That's how we are. We're these clumsy people when we're filled with our own self-righteousness. It's represented as this beam, and we're trying to, at the same time, help somebody else out with their sin. Maybe put another way. It'd be like if you were sitting at an outdoor cafe, you know, the sun's shining, and you're sitting there and kind of in your, your play clothes just hanging out. And you see a guy show up in his Armani suit, and he's got, you know, a little goatee, and he orders a bagel with some cream cheese, and he bites into that bagel. And there's a little bit of cream cheese schmutz that, you know, is, is stuck onto his beard after that. And you sense he's going to a very important meeting. He's checking his watch. He's got his laptop. He's ready to go. And he's getting ready to leave. And you want to help the guy out. And you want to go over and say, hey, hey, buddy, you know, this is embarrassing, but you got a little something, something. And, and that's, that's what you want to do. But this is the picture that Jesus is putting here where it's just this ludicrous scenario. And you'll have to just kind of go with me on it. Uh, it's the beam is getting in your way where you can't help someone with their splinter. So if you, if you change the metaphor to cream cheese, it would be like this. That person's got their cream cheese on their face that's clear and you want to help them with it. 
But what you do before you go over to help that person is you take your own big jug of cream cheese and you stick both your hands in it and you use it as replacement gel for your hair and you slather up your head and hair with a bunch of cream cheese and smear it down your face and then you go up and try to help the person out and say, I want to help you out with your cream cheese problem. That's what self-righteousness looks like. You know, I think that we probably wonder, why, why doesn't it work out when I try to help people out with their sins? You know, what is it that's the barrier? How am I not getting through? And it's our own self-righteousness. We need to look in the mirror first and humble ourselves and pray and seek the Lord and say, God, create in me a clean heart and renew a steadfast spirit in me, and then I'll teach transgressors their ways. That's Psalm 51. Instead, if we don't do that, we are filled with Satan's pride, what filled his heart and where he rebelled against the Lord in the first place. We don't want that. Gets in the way. It renders us useless. So, first of all, we're blind to the main problem, and that is our own sin and our own pride and our own self-righteousness, our beam. And secondly, we're blind to the first step. The first step begins in verse 5. And this is a clear and simple step laid out by Christ. You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Simple step. Deal with yourself first. And what I love about this verse is its clarity and then how it's very generally non-specific at the same time. It's very specific in terms of the fact that we need to examine our own hearts and deal with our own sin, but it's very non-specific in terms of how you are to address someone about their own sin. So where's the emphasis? Where's the specificity? You're a hypocrite, and you've got to deal with your own heart. If you deal with your own heart, and you examine yourself, and you pray about your own sin, and you humble yourself, and do business with the Lord and have some soul surgery taking place, and you go and you bring that sort of humbled atmosphere to a conversation where you begin to bring somebody's sin up, do you know how gentle you're going to come across and how much more gentle you'll come across if you do the soul searching first? It opens people up. Humility opens people up because they know that you don't think you're better than they are when you're telling them about their sin. They know you're there to help. And it really is that simple. But the hard work and the heavy lifting is first dealing with our own hearts before we ever get into the conversation with somebody to broach their sin issue. That's Jesus' point. So we are to be discerning of our own hearts and not to be critical and judgmental. So we're not to have a critical spirit, but we are to have a discerning spirit. And we pick this up in verse 6. Look at verse 6. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. We're to have a discerning spirit. And why? Because there are people out there who are hard-hearted people, who are dangerous people, people that Christ is comparing to wild animals, people who are like dogs and people who are like pigs. We have to discern that. And the Holy Spirit arms us with that kind of discernment as we approach other people. 
You know, the reason he's pointing, um, pointing to dogs and pigs as examples of these people is he wants to point out the wild nature of people who are rejecting the gospel. They're unpredictable, in other words. Dogs here were not the household pets, you know, the lap dog, the Pekingese, the Shih Tzu. Come on, buddy, come on, you know, lick my face. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about a wild animal, like a wolf, like, like a mangy dog or pack of dogs that will tear you up. Like a bear in your backyard. You don't want to go and play with the black bear in your backyard or a pack of hyenas. That's what's here. And he's saying, look, don't, you wouldn't give something that's holy to an animal like that. What does he mean by that? Well, the thing that's holy that he's talking about here is the sacred sacrifice that's put on the altar in Old Testament worship. The scenario would be something like this. You're taking your, your blameless and spotless lamb to sacrifice it on the altar as an act and sign of obedience and repentance to the Lord, Yahweh. And you'd give it to the priest, and the priest would cut off some of the meat. And some of the meat would be excess, and that would be cooked, and perhaps the priest would eat that meat or even give that meat back to the family to eat at home. But then there's this portion of the sacrifice that is designated as holy. It's the consecrated piece of meat. And you sit and you watch this meat burn up because you're not getting it back. It's burning as a sweet savor up to the nostrils of our God. And, and you're watching it, you know, waft up, waft the aroma waft up into the sky. And in the background, you're hearing some snarling and some dogs that have come around because they smell this going on. And Jesus is saying, look, you wouldn't scoop up that piece of meat that's set apart on the altar and throw that to the dogs, would you? That'd be ludicrous. It'd be just like in sort of today's worship at our church, scooping your hand into the offering bag or the offering box and taking out the dollars and checks and ripping them up and crumpling them up and making airplanes out of them or going out into the back dumpster and throwing it away. You wouldn't do something like that. That wouldn't be appropriate. And that's Jesus' point. You don't just throw the precious truth out to people and provoke them. And if you see and sense that someone is hardened to what you're saying to them, you don't press further. It can be dangerous. I mean, the context here is pointing out someone's sin, right? You see a piece of wood in someone's eye. And let's say you deal with your own heart and you're not acting in self-righteousness, but you're being gentle. But then you, you sense a resistance from that person. And, and they're getting hot under the collar. Well, another way that we could begin to be proud or self-righteous is to begin to take the Word of God like a screwdriver and just screw it deeper and deeper and deeper into that heart, as if we could unlock it in our own strength. And Jesus is saying, no, you need to use good judgment. Don't be judgmental, but use good judgment in those scenarios because things could get out of, out of hand. The second picture is like the first, and do not throw your pearls before pigs or before swine. These are not pigs like, you know, um, you know, Zuckerman's famous pig. It's not Wilbur here. These are swine. These are wild boar. These are animals that could rip you up. And so, again, he's saying be very careful with animals like those. I know a pastor in Southern California who would bow hunt boar, and he still does. And, 
and he was out there and he wounded one and was tracking the blood through the woods and on the trail and it was you know probably back in the thicket but all of a sudden it had circled around and was was going to broadside him and right before it hit him all he could think about was this other person who'd been hit that way and gored by the tusks in his femoral artery and the hunter bled out in 20 minutes out in the woods I gave that story first hour, and the person said, you didn't tell me what happened to your friend. Well, he's fine. And he rolled it, rolled over, got the pig, whatever, right? He's fine. But the point is, is that these animals are dangerous. And the scenario here would be one where you're kind of walking into town, and you you bought a sack of pearls to bring home to your wife. And they're, you know, precious pearls. Perhaps it was much of your savings, if not all of your savings, were um, dedicated and donated towards this gift. And so you have those pearls in your pocket. And all of a sudden you get sort of out of town and on the trail and you're surrounded by a herd of swine or boar. And and they're going to eat you if you don't give them something to eat, right? You know, they're seeing you as the savory dinner or you've made them mad. And so you want sort of a food substitute or some sort of distraction and you reach your hands into your pockets and all you find are the pearls and you say, man, I'm just going to throw these out here to save my life. And, you know, the pigs kind of crunch and munch on the pearls and they're eating them, you know, and and they're kind of eyeing you as they're munching through the pearls and they're, they're... they're not being satisfied. Their, their teeth are hurting, and so they're becoming more and more angry at you. And so they turn from their pearls to trample them and then tear you limb from limb. That's the point. You know, pigs were, were such the, the abomination to the Jews. They were the epitome of uncleanness. So for Jesus to use pigs here is really to stir their attention. Uh, The Maccabean revolt, a war was started when a Greek ruler sacrificed a pig on a Jewish altar and force-fed the animal to the Jewish priests in 168 B.C. So, the point is, these are unwieldy animals, these are unpredictable, these are blasphemous creatures. And there are people out there who would resemble this, people who are hard-hearted. Now, we need to love everyone, and we need to give the Word of God to all the world. I'm not saying that we should discriminate who we give the gospel to, but we also need to use discretion in how we give the gospel. Just like we need to use discretion when we confront somebody's sin, we need to use discretion for, for how and what entree we're using to present the truth so as not to provoke people into arguments or all kinds of, you know, rude behavior that's a bad witness. We don't want to do that. And we also don't want people to be unduly provoked and for them to turn their wrath on us just because of our zeal. We need to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves, right? You know, this is why I think um, I don't believe in the seeker model that's so prominent in churches today, where people are trying to to use programs to gather as many people as possible under one roof. I don't believe in that model, and the reason I don't believe in that model is because of verses like these. God is the only one who can change a heart. He's the one that, that softens the wax or hardens the clay. He's the one that's in the heart business, and the Spirit of God and the Word of God is what transforms the heart from the inside out. And so our responsibility is to wisely give the word of God 
and gently give the word of God and leave the results up to the Lord. It's the word that does the work. It's the grace of God. It's probably not surprising that Peter, in 2 Peter chapter 2, uses the same description of false teachers. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. Dangerous people. And we need to be alert. Be aware. All right, take-home points. Here we go. Number one. I'm over, but I'm in the take-home points, so it's okay. All right, number one. Just, just kidding. All right, number one. Here we go. Being in Christ does not mean we escape giving an account to God. And we talked about that quite a bit. Romans 14. Good to meditate on this verse. 14.10, James 3.1. Number two. Restoring someone spiritually always begins with personal examination. We've talked about that, but I want you just to look at Psalm 51. I think this is very, very telling in terms of how we should go about helping people. We pray, create in me a clean heart, renew a right spirit within me, restore to me the joy of your salvation. These are clear steps of examination and spiritual progress that can happen in your heart first just like it needed to happen in King David's heart. But then what will happen? Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. This was a man who had sinned greatly, who had spiritually, apart from the grace of God in this situation, disqualified himself as king and deserved death. And yet he still had a ministry. Then I will teach transgressors your ways. Galatians 6.1 Brothers, if anyone is caught in a transgression, it's when you look out in the body of Christ and you see blocks of wood around you, it says you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. How do you get spiritual first? Well, you yield yourself to the word, you pray, you examine yourself, you you confess your sins, you get into accountability, and then you're in the spirit on the Lord's day, or you're in the Spirit during the week and you're able to help people. You're useful again. Number three, using the Bible with discretion is always wise. This, beloved, is a precious book. It's a two-edged sword. It's the most powerful book in all of the universe for all of eternity. Holy Spirit-inspired, and it's powerful. It's a power tool, and we need to use it wisely. We wouldn't throw this precious treasure, the pearl of great price, our salvation, just to anybody in a willy-nilly sort of way. We need to give the word of God with carefulness, attention, precision, in gentleness, with love, with boldness, with clarity, with an unflinching bravery, and we'll see people changed as God transforms his world and his church by his grace. Let's pray. Father, we pray that we would heed these words. This is precious truth, and we thank you that we do have pearls. We have precious treasure that we can read and meditate on and study and know. And I pray, dear Lord, that you would give us discernment. Let us be a discerning church and a wise church with your word. Lord, let us not be judgmental. We know that we are not judgmental because you are not judgmental towards us. You've judged us in Christ.